0: Tonight, we're continuing our walk through the book of Exodus, and right now in the middle of the Ten Commandments, where God is delivering his word, his law to the people of Israel using the mediator that he has chosen, Moses. And so God is giving the Ten Commandments, which really serve as the foundation for all of the laws that God gives to his people. These 10 commandments are the core of God's covenant relationship with Israel. And so really to violate any of these commandments is to be in breach of the covenant between God and his people. And so all of these commands are quite serious because of how central they are to the faith of Israel and to the faith of us as God's people even today. Because these are abiding principles, abiding moral truths that transcend just the nation of Israel. They, they apply to all of God's people for all, all of time. Tonight, we're looking at the seventh commandment in Exodus 20 and verse 14, which says, you shall not commit adultery. Let's bow before the Lord together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. That we have this opportunity tonight to look to your word, to humble ourselves before it, and to learn the truths that are contained in it. Lord, help us to understand what this commandment is all about, why you've given it, why it's so important for us as a people, for our relationship with you and our relationships with one another. God, I pray that you would help us to apply these truths to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. As I was thinking about this message tonight, the thought struck me that at the end of the Ten Commandments, and really starting with the commandments that turn more toward our relationship with other people, so the first several commands to deal more directly with our relationship with God. The the latter part of the Ten Commandments deal more directly with our relationship with other people, even though they're intertwined, aren't they? So they're all about our relationship with God. They're all about our relationship with other people. But some of the commands are more directly related to either God or to people. And I was thinking about some of these commandments. You shall not murder. Well, there's pretty wide agreement, isn't there? in many, many cultures that murder is wrong. In spite of all the the wrongs and and all of the evils that is happening to our culture today in America, there's still pretty much an agreement that murder is wrong, isn't there? I I was thinking about the commandment after the one that we're looking at tonight, uh, you shall not steal. Well, we... As a society, we still have a pretty strong sentiments about our possessions, don't we? And, and, and about how wrong it would be to, to steal, to take away other people's property. So we have laws on the books about not murdering, about doing violence to other people. We have laws on the books about not stealing. We have laws on the books about not perjuring yourself in a court of, court of law, ninth commandment, bearing false witness against your neighbor. So our society sees the value of these moral principles. To not perjure yourself, to not lie, bear false witness against someone and and lead to their false conviction. To not steal, take from other people's property, to not do violence to your neighbor. So we, we have a general agreement about the morality of those things. And right in the middle of them is this command to not commit adultery. And our society pretty much has said, eh. Right? It doesn't matter. It's not all that big a deal. You see it celebrated everywhere. I mean, now they're making whole TV series and movies just about that. And for a long time now, a couple generations, three, four generations... Early in the 20th century, pretty much our culture said we don't need these moral principles of sexuality anymore. And we can just make it up as we go along. And then we wonder why our society is falling apart as it is. There's a reason why God gave this commandment. And it's not just about sexuality this commandment at the core of it is really about the cohesion of society. It's really about creating a society that can sustain itself, a society that can endure. Because if you bring destruction into the marriage relationship, then what happens then to the family surrounding that marriage relationship? You bring destruction into that whole family, don't you? And, and when that destruction happens in multiple families and that destruction starts to spread in many, many families around a culture, what happens to the society as a whole? It starts to break down. It starts to crumble. And we're seeing the results of that right now. And so as a people, as a society, we ignore God's moral principles to our own doom. This is a very serious command. I was reading one commentator. This is uh, a, actually a Jewish commentator. And he said this about these, these commandments, specifically about the commandments about killing, adultery, and stealing. He said, in regard to these three, three prohibitions, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. There's really nothing new in their substance, he says. For in every civilized society, murder, adultery, and theft are accounted forbidden acts. So, and he's talking about ancient civilizations, civilizations as a whole. He says murder, theft, adultery have been considered forbidden acts. So what does it say about our society if adultery is really not that big of a deal anymore? when pretty much all societies in the history of the world have seen the trouble that adultery can bring into a society. He says all societies have seen that these are forbidden acts. And yet, even these verses in Exodus 20, they contain something unusual, he says. First of all, he says they're given in a very absolute form. In, in Hebrew, these, wor- these verses are literally two words each. So we have several words to translate them into English. You shall not murder or you shall not commit adultery. In Hebrew, they're just two words, not and then the verb. Don't do this, not this. And it, so it's very, very short, very absolute. He says there's no objects, no complements, There's no definitions or qualifications. There's no particulars or conditions. He says they're like the enunciation of fundamental, abstract and eternal principles, which transcend any condition or circumstance. Any detailed definition or restriction, they're universal principles. They're universal truths. And that's why they're given in this very brief, absolute way. He also says the incorporation of these principles in the divine preamble to the deed of covenant are imperatives and statutes sanctified by the sanctity of their legislator, that is God, as a fundamental basis and central pillar of the life of humanity according to the Creator's will. In other words, these principles that are contained in the Ten Commandments about honoring father and mother, about not stealing, not killing, not committing adultery, not perjuring yourself, not bearing false witness against your neighbor, these are what make us human. These are what make us humans made in the image of God after the model of our Creator. And when we violate these fundamental principles of what God made us to be, we are, we are kicking up against our very humanity of what God designed for us to be. I want us to think about how this, uh, this command is seen in the ancient world outside of Israel. We see, for example, in Egyptian and Syrian cultures in the the ancient world that adultery was considered the great sin. It was a breach of faith that was likened to treason. That's how serious adultery was in some of these cultures. Adultery, along with murder, was considered a religious sin. It was a sin against the gods themselves in these other cultures the typical punishment for adultery in the ancient world was the death penalty. That's pretty serious, isn't it? The death penalty. In these ancient cultures, and even in later Roman law, adultery was considered a, an offense that, in which, if it was discovered, the offending parties could be killed on the spot. Marriage has been the glue that has held civilizations together throughout all of recorded history, dating all the way back to the ancient world. And so we have evidence of these in these ancient records of how serious marriage was viewed and therefore how serious the sin of adultery was treated in these cultures. Well, what is adultery? What is it in its core? Really what adultery is, is it's a, a breach or a violation of covenantal obligations. So obviously, yes, adultery involves sexuality, doesn't it? It involves immoral sexual acts. But at the heart of it is a breach of the marriage covenant. It is a breach of the marriage covenant by engaging in sexual relations with someone other than your spouse. One commentator defines it this way. No one is allowed to have sexual relations with any married person except his or her spouse. And no married person is allowed to have sexual relations with anyone other than his or her spouse. This commandment is specifically dealing with marriage. Now, the rest of the Old Testament deals with other sexual sins, such as premarital sex, fornication, other homosexuality, etc. So there are other commandments elsewhere in the Old Testament that deal with larger issues of sexuality. This commandment is specifically about marriage, it is about the sanctity of marriage. And so adultery is treated with special significance in the scriptures because it involves the severing of a covenantal marriage agreement between two individuals. It's considered a crime against the family. It's considered a crime against the people, the society at large, and it's considered a sin against God. It's very serious in the scriptures. I want to read just from a couple of commentaries here because I think they do a really good job of showing how important this commandment was for the cohesion of marriage and therefore the larger cohesion of Israelite society. This one is from the the, uh, InterVarsity Press Bible Background Commentary. It says this, The purpose of this commandment was to protect the husband's name by assuring him that his children would be his own. Hittite laws, Middle Assyrian laws, and the Code of Hammurabi all contain legislation against adultery. In many of these cultures, it was considered the great sin and was considered extremely detrimental to society in that it was characteristic of anarchy. The protection of the integrity of the family unit was important because the family was the foundation of society. Compromise or collapse of the family meant compromise or collapse of society. Dwayne Garrett says this, We must ask why the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, explicitly forbids adultery as as opposed to using a more generically word defining sexual immorality as a whole. He says, The reason I believe is that marriage is foundational for the survival of the family and of society. It is not that other forms of sexual immorality are less evil, rather, it is that the focus of this text is not on describing generically every kind of sin. The focus is on sins that destroy the fabric of society among the covenant people. These are sins that can break apart a nation. Sins that can break apart a society. Desmond Alexander says this, Of all human relationships, that between a man and a woman bound together by a solemn oath and consummated by the intimacy of sexual union is unique. The degree of commitment and intimacy that exists in marriage sets it apart from all other relationships. It represents the pinnacle of human relations. No other can compare with it. So with good reason, Genesis 2.24 speaks of a married couple being one flesh. In this context, sexual union ought to be a sign of both love and faithfulness. And what I think is interesting is that In our culture right now, whereas in ancient cultures and really in biblical morality, sexual union is considered a a sign, an act of consummation of a covenant. That act, that consummation of a covenant is an indication of commitment, of fidelity, of faithfulness, of endurance, of linking yourself by one flesh to this person for the rest of your life. That's what that means. And instead, our culture has completely flipped it on its head and now is using this act simply for the pleasure without any consideration at all for faithfulness or enduring commitment to a relationship. And so the sexual act was designed to seal a commitment, a covenant. So young people, don't sell yourself too cheaply. The only thing that allows you to engage in that action is if someone else is giving their lives to you and committing their lives to you in marriage for the rest of their lives. Anything less than that is saying, I don't respect you enough to give you the faithfulness and the commitment that you deserve. So it's a sign of love and faithfulness and commitment. Desmond Alexander goes on to say that any action that threatens to undermine the marriage bond must be seen as endangering all human relations. A society that diminishes the importance of marriage the most intimate of all relationships signals that it places a low priority on faithfulness in every other relationship. When an individual's commitment to a marriage partner is fickle, other relationships are likely to be treated in a similar manner. In the context of the covenant being made between God and Israel, if the people are unfaithful towards their marriage partners, they will inevitably lack faithfulness towards God himself. And this is why in the scriptures, the language of adultery is used in the prophets to describe Israel's unfaithfulness to their God in idolatry and in other violations of the covenant. So in worshiping false gods, in, in committing uh, theft, lying, in, in dishonoring their father and mother, in dishonoring the Sabbath, In all of those, the prophets regard all of that as spiritual adultery because it is being unfaithful to the covenant. And so how how do we see this used in the Old Testament? How does this work itself out in the Old Testament? This commandment to not commit adultery, it was considered a capital offense in Old Testament Israel. And so to commit adultery was to receive the death penalty. And unlike other ancient civilizations and cultures which at times gave diminishment or, or qualifications in which that wasn't carried out, Israel did not lessen that punishment because it saw how serious it was. And so it brought the death penalty. In addition to someone who was into to adultery happening between to people who were already fully married, it was also possible in Israelite society for, for someone who was married to have relations with someone who was betrothed. And in Old Testament Israel, to have relations with someone who was betrothed, what we might call engaged, that was also considered adultery in the Old Testament. We see many examples of this sin And we see the devastating consequences of it, don't we? Probably the one that we all think of when we think of this sin is David and Bathsheba. And we think of that story, and that story is given to us in the scriptures to teach us that these are the repercussions of of when we violate our relationship with God. And so you see David violating the command to not commit adultery. You see David then going on and having to violate the command to not murder. And he ends up having to kill Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And the whole thing ends up in turmoil and chaos in David's family, doesn't it? He loses several of his own children. His own son tries to usurp the throne from him. It, just, it becomes just a totally chaotic situation in David's family. His family broke down and began to collapse after that act of adultery. We see in wisdom literature, such as Proverbs, repeated warnings about the dangers of adultery. We see repeated warnings from the father to the young man, to his son, warning him against the seduction of the adulterous woman. He, he warns him about the fact that adultery can lead to loss of wealth and ultimately to death. He warns his young son that the offended husband will never be appeased. And the blight, the mark attached to his name, his reputation will never go away. So adultery in the Old Testament was considered very serious. What about What about in the New Testament? We transition now to the New Testament. How do we understand this commandment in our relationship with Christ now? How do we obey this command? And I would say, largely speaking, there is no change. There is no change. Other than this, we don't live in a nation of Israel, per se, that has the attached penalties that go along with the law. And so we do not face a capital punishment if we commit this this uh, breaking this law today but we're still sinning against God, aren't we? This is still the same serious sin that it was in Old Testament Israel, even if it doesn't carry the same civil penalty that it did in Old Testament Israel. And so this command is repeated many times in the New Testament. We see it in Romans 13, verse 9, in James 2, verse 11. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, adultery is listed as in a list of sins that are a part of the Christian's previous way of life. Paul lists several sins, and among them is adultery. And he says, and this is what some of you were, past tense. But you've been changed, you've been transformed by the sanctifying grace of God. And so adultery is still sin in the New Testament. Jesus expands this concept of adultery to to go beyond just the physical violation of the covenant, doesn't he? When he says in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said that if someone commits adultery that they have, they will face punishment. But he says, I say to you that if a man looks on a woman with lust in his heart, he has committed adultery in his heart. And so Jesus expands this to include not just the physical act, but the mental as well. Interestingly enough, Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, that illegitimately divorcing your spouse is also adultery. In Matthew five, thirty-one and thirty-two, Matthew nineteen, one to nine, Jesus says that except it be for the cause of fornication, except it be for unfaithfulness, if someone divorces, then they are committing adultery. Which means an illegitimate divorce is considered adultery. And just like in the Old Testament, adultery in the New Testament is also used as a metaphor for spiritual unfaithfulness. In James 4, verse 4, we see James saying, you adulterers and adulteresses, repent, break out of your worldliness. So James uses it in that metaphorical sense as well. And so in the Old Testament, we see that adultery is a violation of its most important relationship, most important human relationship. It is a break of the covenant between man and wife. It is the destruction of a family. And that destruction of a family results in the erosion of the foundation of a society. Adultery is a demonstration of a lack of faithfulness to one's commitments to the well-being of his or her closest human relationship. Unfaithfulness in the closest of relationships destroys faithfulness and integrity in all relationships. Most importantly, it's a sin against a holy God, isn't it? It's a sin against God himself and a violation of his holiness. And so it should not be named among God's people. Adultery is not a fruit of the spirit. It's a fruit of the flesh, a work of the flesh. And so what we need to do as God's people is we need to shine a light in our culture on this issue. And one of the best ways for us to preach biblical morality on this issue right now is to live it. To live it. All around us, marriage is falling apart, isn't it? I mean, you can go back several generations and you start to see the destruction of marriage through a lessening of cultural values on extramarital sexual relations. We see the destruction of the family in that the courts eventually decided they were going to throw out At fault divorce. And so now to get a divorce, you don't have to prove fault. You don't have to prove infidelity. You don't have to prove adultery, unfaithfulness. You can just pay the fee, go to the court, and get a divorce. That's undermining the very foundation that this commandment is meant to protect the marriage, the family, society. We see all around us marriage being attacked. And one of the ways that currently in the last just a couple of years that it is under attack is in the changing of the definition of marriage itself. In which for all of history, going back to the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, marriage is defined as a relationship between one man and one woman joined together as one flesh for life. And now our culture has just decided we're going to redefine that we're going to redefine that to include whatever gender whatever you want to call it it's if you love somebody it's marriage and that's not what the bible teaches and so by redefining marriage and by by opening it up to to those that for whom it was not originally intended it is undercutting the very foundation of marriage and the family and of society the reason why this commandment was given and so i would say this any Action, any thought, any any desire that undercuts the faithfulness of the marriage covenant is a violation of this command. And so may we guard it, not only with our actions, but with our thoughts, with our values. And our culture needs to see what a biblical marriage looks like. And so it's one thing for us as Christians to say, that's wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Homosexual marriage is wrong. That's one thing for us to say that. But then they they don't really pay that much attention when in the church at large, divorce and unfaithfulness is rampant. And so the, the culture at large says, what are you talking to me about the sanctity of marriage about when here you are over here not valuing it at all? And they have a legitimate point. Not saying this is okay, but we also need to uphold everything that the Bible teaches about biblical morality on sexuality. And so we need to be good examples of faithfulness, of fidelity, of sexual purity, of upholding marriage, of strengthening families, because strong marriages, strong families, results in a strong society. Failing marriages broken families results in a crumbling society. And we see it happening around us. And so may we not only express our views and preach our words but let's also live our lives and be the salt and the light to the world that shows them this is how God designed for it to be. Now obviously we're not perfect. And and we're we're not going to be perfect in this example. We're going to fail. And for that we have a perfect savior. But as much as God gives us the ability and the grace, let's hold forth the light that others may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That's what Jesus taught us in Matthew 5:16. And so may we be that light to our society and strengthen our families within our church, within our community, and perhaps that will have a ripple effect beyond the borders of our church and community. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God of truth, of holiness, of faithfulness, of purity. And that in you and in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in your Holy Spirit, we have the perfect model of faithfulness, of covenant commitment, of enduring love. So, Father, may we learn from you. May your spirit abide within us and teach us how to be faithful and how to love. So, God, help us to obey this command, not as a burdensome restriction, but out of a desire to love you and enjoy to live the way that you've designed for us to live. So may we fulfill your purpose, Lord, and, and, and live our lives in conformity with the way that you've designed us by living pure, faithful lives in which we honor our commitments. Lord, help us as your people. May your name be honored in, and exalted. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.